Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Comfort My People. It's based upon the lectionary readings for December 6th, 2020, the second Sunday in Advent. Where do you go for comfort? If I were to ask you to make a list of the places you associate with healing, restoration, nurture, and consolation, What sorts of places would you list? The woods? The ocean? A mountain retreat? A favorite corner of your home? In our readings for the second week of Advent, comfort resides in a place we wouldn't expect. A hard place. A paradoxical place. If you seek the comfort of God, these scriptures tell us, head to the wilderness. Just to be clear, the wilderness these texts describe is not the wilderness of a pristine national park, a well-tended shoreline, or the forest havens we associate with sleeping bags, campfires, and s'mores. The wilderness of the Bible is harsh and austere, bleak and inhospitable. Its weather patterns are unpredictable. Its water sources are scarce. There are no established trails to be found amidst its rocky crevices. If we want a path, we have to forge it by our own sweat, blood, and tears. The wilderness of scripture, moreover, isn't a destination we choose by ourselves. Sometimes we're taken there against our will. By illness, or loss, or trauma, or hardship, the wilderness is a place of captivity, of exile. We end up there when our careful plans fail. When someone we trust betrays us, when our beloved dies, when the faith we've practiced so effortlessly suddenly dries up. The wilderness of the Bible is not by any stretch of the imagination a place we'd wish to inhabit. Yet it is in this kind of hostile desert that God speaks tenderly to God's people. It is when we prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, when we make straight in the desert a highway for our God, that the promise of consolation comes. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. A reading from Second Isaiah describes an assembly of the heavenly host. The topic of conversation in the divine council is the situation of God's children on earth. The children of Judah who have been exiled from their homeland, their identity, their kin, and their temple. These are people who have been robbed, ravaged, demoralized, and crushed by their Babylonian captors, driven away from all that is safe and familiar. In every way imaginable, they are in the wilderness. Likewise, in our Gospel reading, Mark describes John the Baptizer appearing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's message, like Isaiah's, is aimed at a people living under foreign rule, in this case Roman, and suffering the loss of autonomy, dignity, and freedom that is part and parcel of empire. As we move deeper into Advent and consider what it means to wait for the coming of Jesus, these readings challenge us to consider hard questions about location. Why does Scripture ask us to dwell in the wilderness in the weeks leading up to Christmas? Why must God's comfort come to us in such barren, desolate settings? Why is joy hidden in the desert? Here are some possible reasons. First, the wilderness is a place that lays us bare. It's a place where we must contend with our own powerlessness. 
In the wilderness, there's no safety net, no plan B, no savings account or national guard. In the wilderness, life is raw and risky and our illusions of self-sufficiency fall apart fast. To locate ourselves at the outskirts of our own power is to acknowledge our vulnerability in the starkest terms. In the wilderness, we have no choice but to wait and watch as if our lives depend on God showing up, because they do. And it's into such an environment, an environment so far removed from power as to make power laughable, that the word of God comes. Secondly, the wilderness softens us towards repentance, the repentance that makes God's consolation and comfort possible. When John the Baptist proclaims his baptism of repentance, he does so in the desert, away from the temple, away from the city, away from everything his listeners consider routine and familiar. Why? Because something about the harsh, bewildering environment of the desert brings people to their knees. It shows them what is really in their hearts, and it allows their hardened exteriors to melt in penitence, sorrow, and hope. I know that for us 21st century Christians, sin and repentance are loaded words. Many of us, particularly those of us who grew up experiencing the Church's teaching on sin as a weapon, hesitate in its presence. We associate sin with guilt, self-loathing, and hellfire. We approach it with fear rather than confidence. But whether we like it or not, Advent begins with an honest, wilderness-style reckoning with sin. As Isaiah describes it, the God who comforts is also the God who judges. The God who forgives is also the God who convicts. This is not because God is cruel, capricious, or withholding, but because God knows how deeply sin distorts and damages our souls. God sees what sin does to people suffering on the margins. God sees what it does to those who wield power. God sees what sin does to creation itself. Is it possible that acknowledging our sin might become an occasion for relief? Maybe, if we can get past our baggage and risk the desert, we will find comfort in the fact that we are hopelessly enslaved to something we cannot fix on our own. Maybe, confessing our need for deliverance will lead us to a place of profound comfort, a place where God, who alone has both the power and the will to forgive us, can make us whole. What is sin? Growing up, I was taught that sin is breaking God's laws or missing the mark as an archer misses his target or committing immoral acts. These definitions aren't wrong, but they assume that sin is a problem primarily because it angers God. But God's temper is not what, what's at stake. Sin is a problem because it kills us. Sin is estrangement, disconnection, sterility, and disharmony. Sin is a frightened resistance to an engaged life. It is a walking death, and the God who wishes to comfort us cannot do so when we are dead to God, the world, and ourselves. In the wilderness, on our knees, at the very end of ourselves, we learn the meaning of resurrection. Lastly, the wilderness is a place where we can see the landscape whole and participate in God's great work of leveling inequality and oppression. Our reading from Isaiah describes a day when every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill made low, and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth. Unless we're in the wilderness, it's hard to see our own privilege and even harder to imagine giving it up. No one standing on a mountaintop wants the mountain to be flattened. But when we're wandering in the wilderness, an immense barren landscape stretch out before us in every direction, we're able to see what privilege locations obscure.
Suddenly, we feel the rough places beneath our feet. We experience what it's like to struggle down twisty, crooked paths. We see arrogance in the mountains and desolation in the valleys, and we begin to dream God's dream of a holy, reimagined landscape. A landscape so smooth and straight and enables all flesh to see the salvation of God. Our reading from Isaiah suggested this great leveling, this great reversal of high and low, rich and poor, full and empty, arrogant and humble, must happen before the Lord appears to gather his flock in his arms. The highway that will bring God into our midst is the highway we must pave through this leveling, this toppling, this sustained insistence on justice, healing, reparation, and liberation. If we don't consider this good news, then we need to interrogate where we're located. Are we the mountains that must be brought down, or the valleys that will be filled? Our Advent texts this week assume that we are a people in exile, a people wandering in the wilderness. Is this true? Where are you located during this holy season? How close are you to power, and how open are you to risking the wilderness to hear a word from God? What might repentance look like for you here and now? Where is God leveling the ground you stand on, and what will it take for you to participate in that uncomfortable but essential work? Comfort awaits us in the desert. God promises to come to us in the wilderness. May we believe this. May we wander and be found. Like the prophets who came before us, may we become brave voices in hard places, preparing the way of the Lord. For books this week, Dan reviews Anne Boyer's The Undying, Pain, Vulnerability, Mortality, Medicine, Art, Time, Dreams, Data, Exhaustion, Cancer, and Care. Back in 2014, one week after her 41st birthday, the American poet and essayist Anne Boyer was diagnosed with a rare and highly aggressive triple negative form of breast cancer. She was a single mother of an 8th grader living in a two-bedroom apartment. She had no savings, no nearby family, and a job where she was advised never to let on that she was sick. Her unapologetically angry memoir about her cancer experience won the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction. Cancer in itself is bad enough, and Boyer describes in painstaking detail what that is like. The poison of chemotherapy, followed by a double mastectomy, then returning to work 10 days later because she was out of sick leave. But what really makes cancer so insidious, in her view, are the many ways that one's sickness is necessarily mediated through all sorts of systems, like the healthcare system or the capitalist medical universe. Elsewhere, she calls this a ruinous carcinogenosphere and an ideological regime. So beyond describing her personal experience, Boyer offers a furious social-cultural critique, and almost nothing escapes her wrath. The insurance industry, drug companies, Medicine as profit, gender, politics, race, economics, cancer fakers, spurious home remedies, and especially the pink ribbon charity Susan G. Komen for the cure that, to date, has raised nearly a billion dollars. This social-cultural deconstruction is supported by philosophic reflections on the likes of the first century Aristides, Arendt, Sontag, Foucault, Don, and Goethe. It comes as no surprise, then, that one of Boyer's heroes is a woman who said no to this brutal regime and refused treatment. 
Perhaps rage is a much-needed pushback against our culture's many myths about cancer. But it's not the only authentic way to parse cancer. I especially appreciated three other cancer memoirs. There's Julie Yip Williams' The Unwinding of the Miracle, 2019. As a ruthless realist, Yip Williams describes how in the course of her cancer she changed from a belligerent warrior who would win her war with the disease to a contemplative philosopher who distrusted the rah-rah-rah nonsense and the cottage industry of denial that exists among some sectors of the cancer community. I also appreciated Kate Bowler's Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, 2018. Bowler, a historian at Duke Divinity School, was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer when she was 35. Finally, there is a remarkable, me- remarkable memoir by Paul Calanthini, When Breath Becomes Air. Kalaniti had finished some 12 years of training, medical school at Yale, a degree in the history and philosophy of science and medicine at Cambridge, and then neurosurgery training and a postdoc in neuroscience at Stanford, when at the age of 36 he was diagnosed with stage 4 metastatic lung cancer, a terminal diagnosis that was extremely rare for someone his age. His memoir, which he worked on right up to his death in March of 2015, describes how he and his wife Lucy, an internist at Stanford, struggled to find meaning in his dramatic role reversal, from being a neurosurgeon who had won prestigious national awards to becoming a patient in a hospital gown, sitting in the very same exam rooms where he had treated hundreds of his own patients. For films this week, Dan reviews Into the Inferno. In this documentary about volcanoes, which he has filmed since 1976, the inimitable Werner Herzog joins forces with the Cambridge volcanist Clive Oppenheimer to explore one of the Earth's most violent wonders. The movie is partly based on Oppenheimer's book Eruptions That Shook the World. The peripatetic Herzog makes six stops around the world. He begins and ends on the island of Vanuatu, moves to Antarctica, then Indonesia, more volcanoes than any country in the world, Ethiopia, Iceland, and North Korea. This being Herzog, he's interested in the volcanoes, but what he's really interested in are the belief systems of humans that surround the volcanoes. Nature is his stage, but human nature is his plot. So in addition to footage of the haunting and terrifying beauty of volcanic eruptions and rivers of molten lava accompanied by operatic arias, we're introduced to the spirits, dances, rituals, and processions of local traditions. Says Herzog, obviously there was a scientific side to our journey, but what we were really chasing was the magical side, the demons, the new gods. Dan watched this film on Netflix. And lastly, for poetry on the second Sunday of Advent, Advent Calendar by Rowan Williams. He will come like last leaves fall. One night when the November wind has flayed the trees to bone and earth wakes choking on the mold, the soft shrouds folding. He will come like frost. One morning when the shrinking earth opens on mist to find itself arrested in the net of alien, sword-set beauty. He will come like dark. One evening when the bursting red December sun draws up the sheet and penny masks its eye to yield the star-snowed fields of sky, he will come, will come, will come like crying in the night, like blood, like breaking, as the earth writhes to toss him free. He will come 
like child. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for December 6th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.